We are delighted to have here with us uh, another panel. This panel is on the subject of free speech and equal dignity. I'm Leslie Kendrick. I'm a professor of law here at the, at the law school and a, a co-host of this symposium. This is our third Thomas Jefferson Symposium on free speech, and I want to thank all of you for coming and attending. I'll be uh, one of the speakers here, but I'm, I'm joined by and, and privileged to be on, on a panel with our, our other two speakers, whom I want to introduce before I, turn the, uh, before I turn the podium over to Susan. We have with us today Susan Bryson. Susan is Professor of Philosophy and Eunice and Julian Cohen Professor for the Study of Ethics and Human Values at Dartmouth College. She also at Dartmouth teaches in the program in Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies. Currently, she is the Lawrence S. Rockefeller, Rockefeller Visiting Professor for Distinguished Teaching at Princeton University's Center for Human Values. She's also previously been a member of the Institute for Advanced Studies, also at Princeton. Professor Bryson is a rare philosopher who is engaged with the real world. She's a rigorous, analytic philosopher who connects her work to the lives and experiences of real people. She has written on topics such as free speech, sexual violence, and feminist politics and philosophy. Her work has appeared in journals such as Ethics, Nomos, and Legal Theory. She's written two prior books, and she's currently at work on a forthcoming book entitled De Debating Pornography, which covers the internal divisions within feminism on the subject of pornography starting in the 1970s, and the continuing debates on pornography today. We're also privileged to have Professor Claudrina Harold. Professor Harold is Associate Professor of African American and African Studies and History here at the University of Virginia. Her work, too, bridges the gap between the academic realm and the real world. She specializes in the history of and current experience of African Americans in the American South. Her first book, was the rise and fall of the Garvey movement in the urban South, 1918 to 1942. She also co-edited The Punitive Turn, New Approaches to Race and Incarceration, published by University of Virginia Press. Her latest book is entitled New Negro Politics in the Jim Crow South. She has also written, produced, and co-directed two short films, one entitled Sugar-Coated Arsenic and the other We Demand. We Demand was screened at the Berlin International Film Festival this year. I'd like to welcome both of them here, and Professor Bryson, I'll invite you to give your remarks. Thanks so much. I'm really pleased to be here and very grateful to the organizers. John Jeffries and Leslie Kendrick for bringing this group together. I hope people will stick around for tomorrow's sessions as well. I'm really appreciative of the fact that they actually have brought together people with a wide variety of viewpoints on free speech issues. There is really not as much agreement amongst us as might initially appear. As has been mentioned, this is not a new issue. I started teaching at Dartmouth College in 1985, and I was hired to teach analytic philosophy of language and philosophy of mind, but I was very much aware of the effects of especially racist hate speech on the campus at the time. 
Um, applications from underrepresented minorities went way down. Some faculty of color left or were driven out. And I heard at that time administrators saying, we have to tolerate this. We can't do anything about this because of the First Amendment. And I don't have a background in law. I retooled in law when I got interested in these issues. Uh, but I'm a philosopher. Uh, but I knew that Dartmouth was a private institution and that we had all kinds of codes of conduct restricting speech of, of various kinds. So I was a little bit baffled by what I came to call a kind of First Amendment fundamentalism, this view that there is this view that speech has to be protected at all costs and it must not be questioned. It must be held, uh, as I think Mill would have said, dead dogma. If it's not questioned, if it's not challenged, then it's not clear um, what the view is and whether or not it's defensible. Anyway, there were a number of cases in the late 80s, early 90s about free speech in which judges acknowledged that there was a conflict of rights, a conflict between a First Amendment right to freedom of expression and a 14th Amendment right to equal protection. And what surprised me in reading some of these cases was the judges would say, okay, it's a difficult case, we've got a conflict of rights, of course, the First Amendment right takes priority. And then I would look for the argument, and I didn't find the argument, so I looked to philosophers to find the argument and looked at the various arguments for a principle of freedom of expression. You know, the argument from truth and the argument from democracy, argument from autonomy, I'll say a few few things about those later. Um, And there I didn't find rationale for supposing that the right to free speech precludes restrictions on even harmful hate speech that undermines some people's right to equality. So that's what got me started. I want to just um, read a few things from one of these cases. This is Doe versus the University of Michigan, which was a 1989 U.S. District Court opinion that ruled unconstitutional University of Michigan uh, policy on discrimination and discriminatory harassment. I'm not going to talk about the details of the policy. It may well have been overbroad, underbroad. What I'm interested in is the rationale that Judge Avery Cohn used in the opinion. Um, first, here's the background that he gives. I'm just quoting this paragraph. According to the university, in the last three years, incidents of racism and racial harassment appeared to become increasingly frequent at the university. For example, On January 27, 1987, unknown persons distributed a flyer declaring open season on blacks, which it referred to as, quote, saucer lips, porch monkeys, and jigaboos, end quote. In the current climate, I'm afraid to even mention these words in scare quotes, but I am, to use a philosophical distinction, mentioning them. I'm not using them, but uh, this is a challenge that we're facing right now. On February 4th, 1987, a student disc jockey on an on-campus radio station allowed racist jokes to be broadcast. At a demonstration protesting these incidents, a Ku Klux Klan uniform was displayed from a dormitory window. These events and others prompted the university's president to issue a statement expressing outrage and reaffirming the university's commitment to maintaining a racially, ethnically, and culturally diverse campus the university was unable to identify the perpetrators. 
it is unknown whether the culprits were students. Likewise, this is the part that really got me, there was no evidence to suggest that these were anything other than isolated and purposeless acts. And in his opinion, Cohn wrote, it is an unfortunate fact of our constitutional system that the ideals of freedom and equality are often in conflict. The difficult and sometimes painful task of our political and legal institutions is to mediate the appropriate balance between these two competing values. And Judge Cohn concluded that, quote, while the court is sympathetic to the university's obligation to ensure equal educational opportunities for all of its students, such efforts must not be at the expense of free speech. There are two things I'd like to point out about this opinion. I mean, first is the judge conceded that there is a conflict, conceded the empirical claim that was being made by those who were proponents of um, the policy on discrimination and discriminatory harassment. But said, of course, we must not sacrifice free speech, even at the cost of failing to ensure equal educational opportunities for some students. Why? What's the argument? Why should we think, in this case, freedom trumps equality? And the second thing I'd like to point out is this astonishing neglect of the context in which these racist incidents occurred. The judge called them isolated and purposeless acts, neglecting the historical and the contemporary context. Right? And the fact that there was apparently no single perpetrator behind the acts made them, if anything, more, not less harmful to the targets. They were simply part of the environment. Right? Um, now, these kinds of conflicts, and I think the ones that we're dealing with now, typically are not just about the particular words themselves. Right? And that's one of the things that makes them so intractable. I think it makes these conflicts so intractable. We have to look at the context, the historical context of the group doing the speaking, the group do it being targeted, but also the current political, cultural, social context, and not just focus on these isolated words. Um, I think this is one misunderstanding about students' complaints about so-called microaggressions. Right? Each one is just a little thing. What's the big deal? Right? But they do accumulate and they take place in an environment in which some students already feel marginalized. Um, but I want to say something, actually, I, inspired by um, reading Kelly Carlin's work. I, I looked into reading up more about George Carlin. I may be one of the few people who's sort of coming to George Carlin via Kelly Carlin rather than the other way around, but I'm really grateful to her for, for her work. Um, she referred to you know, the seven dirty words that you can never say on television. Um, I won't repeat all of them, but uh, one of them was tits. Now, I read online that George Carlin in his comedy routine 
would joke that, well, really, tits should not be on the list because it sounds like a nickname or a snack. Quote, new Nabisco tits, corn tits, cheese tits, tater tits. And I don't use language like this myself, but I found that very funny. Um, but I also felt the immediate need to contrast that with the sticker that I saw on a souped-up pickup truck behind my office, behind the hall where the philosophy department is located at Dartmouth. Sticker said, my other toy has tits. That, I felt verbally assaulted by that. Um, not because of the use of the word tits in isolation, but because of the attitude towards women as toys, dehumanized objects that it conveyed. And so I think it's important that we look at the broader contexts uh, in thinking about why people have such strong reactions to some of this speech. Um, I'm going to use another word that I never use, but uh, I don't know how many of you heard Trevor Noah on The Daily Show after the second presidential debate talking about the word pussy. I mean, I really think that it's that what turned the tide is that people were just really offended by that dirty word, right? Not on the original list of seven, but and not by what Trump was actually saying. And Trevor Noah said, there's a big difference between saying dirty words and glorifying non-consensual sexual content. So I actually think that it's a mistake to think we could just come up with some list of prescribable words and solve the problem in, uh, of harmful hate speech in, in that way. Uh, but as a philosopher, I've been looking at the issue of why do we think speech is so special? Sure, we've got it protected right there in the First Amendment, but no other country has that particular view such that they think it was absolutely impermissible for the government to regulate even racist hate speech, even speech inciting people to racial hatred. We're an outlier in that regard. And I think it's worth thinking about why that is. Um, so the question is, what, if anything, makes speech special? And Either the right to free speech is part of a general right to liberty, right, constrained by Mill's harm to others principle, right, that we have a right to do whatever we, somebody alluded to this in the earlier panel, you know, to do what we want so long as we don't violate someone else's liberty or harm other people. Either it's part of a general right or there's some special right, right? There is a presumption against restricting even harmful speech. I'm going to, this will be my last quoting of philosophers here, but um, a free speech principle holds that speech is special in this way. Uh, here I'm quoting Fred Schauer, one of your constitutional law scholars. 
the University of Virginia. Under a free speech principle, any governmental action to achieve a goal, whether that goal be positive or negative, must provide a stronger justification when the attainment of the goal requires the restriction of speech than when no limitations on speech are employed. Right? Or as Ken Greenewalt puts it, a principle of freedom of speech asserts some range of protection for speech that goes beyond limitations on government interference with other activities. Right? So a showing of harm caused by something is not by itself sufficient to justify restriction of speech. Uh, and as Tim Scanlon notes, quote, on any strong version of the doctrine of freedom of expression, there will be cases where protected acts are held to be immune from restriction despite the fact that they have as consequences harms which would normally be sufficient to justify the imposition of legal sanctions. So that's what I want to focus on. I want to put to one side whether we should be restricting offensive speech, right? I don't think we should. I think the question is, um, what, sh if anything, should we do about harmful speech? And I think everybody now acknowledges that speech causes serious harms. Nobody any longer buys the sticks and stones mantra. Right? I think probably most of us since childhood have been a little puzzled about how to fit that together with the, the pen is mightier than the sword. It's like, the pen is mightier than the sword, but names can never hurt me. How, how could that be? Unless... The pen is only a force for good and, and never for ill. So why do we suppose speech is so special that even if it causes harms, which if brought about by other means, the government would be justified in restricting, has to be protected, has to be tolerated? Well, one of the main arguments is the argument from truth, generally attributed to John Stuart Mill, uh, but it goes back to Milton's 1644, Areopagitica, and in which he says, among other things, about truth, let her and falsehood grapple. Whoever knew truth put to the worse in a free and open encounter. And I love that phrase. I mean, it's, it's beautifully expressed, um, but it also indicates a very strange view about speech and agency. It's like out there, independent of any human beings who are doing any actual talking, we've got truth and falsehood, grappling, fighting it out. And of course, truth in a free and open encounter will always win out. Now, I'm not going to talk about whether this is empirically plausible, um, but just to point out that although we've been talking about truth so far in, in this symposium and the importance um, of it, that what we do with words is far more than simply express our thoughts, true or false. Um, hate speech, for example, is not typically about truth. Right? And so I want us to think about what we do with words, and if what we do with words is as harmful as what we can do with physical actions, why should the words get more protection than the physical actions don't get? So, I mean, philosophers used to think that what we did with language was express thoughts. Right? I say, it's sunny outside, so you know that I'm thinking it's sunny outside. 
and decide, well, that's true. But that's a very small thing, I think, that we do with language. Right? We also use it to do various things, right? to degrade and humiliate and shame and derogate and rank other people, or to praise and uplift and encourage and hearten them. Right? And we don't always use sentences that have truth values to do these things. I think if people are interested during the discussion, I'd be, be happy to talk about the merits and demerits of these three arguments for free speech, but I'm just going to gloss over them pretty quickly now. Um, I can't do, do them justice, but I think the argument from truth, that is that we don't want the government to be restricting speech because if they do so, the truth is less likely to win out in the long run. It's actually a pretty good argument for allowing free speech of a certain kind in a philosophy seminar where people are actually there because they're trying to arrive at the truth about some subject or other. Right? And they're all sort of rational processors of information, listening ideally to each other and have this common goal of arriving at the truth. Right? But if you look at the world today and how people communicate with other people, look at major media outlets, it doesn't seem like what we're talking about is a philosophy seminar. Okay, so another argument is the argument from democracy, that we can't have the government restricting speech because that's going to interfere with our having a well-functioning democracy. Everybody needs to be able to express their views and everybody needs to have access to everybody else's opinions. But Sometimes speech can silence other people. Right? If people are being marginalized and excluded um, from the conversation, if they're being threatened or humiliated so that they don't feel that they can speak, we're not going to be hearing their views. But what I find interesting about these two arguments for free speech is they both are based on the view that we value speech because of what it can do for us, right? Why do we value speech? We value it for its ability to lead us to the truth, ultimately, or for its ability to bring about a well-functioning democracy. Right? But if that's your view, if you give that kind of consequentialist argument for a right to free speech, then you need to be open to the possibility that restrictions on speech might be better able to serve that goal. That's going to be an empirical question. So some philosophers have instead said, no, look, the right to free speech just is a fundamental human right. It's part of the right to autonomy that we all have. This is a purported to be a non-consequentialist argument for the right to free speech, that for the government to stop me from saying something, it's just violating my right to autonomy, even if stopping me is going to bring about uh, you know, the greatest happiness for the greatest number, it's going to bring about a better society. Right? The difficulty with this, there are several difficulties. One is that it's very difficult to pin anyone down on what is meant by autonomy. A number of legal theorists cite 
um, Harry Frankfurt's view about autonomy, that's a matter of having your first order desires in, in line with your higher order preferences. And, but if you look at that philosophical view, you could actually be autonomous, an autonomous individual, and be bound, gagged, and thrown into a dungeon by your government. So it doesn't really work to support this particular view about free speech. But in addition, uh, people who propose this need to acknowledge, I think, the ways in which people using speech can undermine other people's right to autonomy. If you buy this, that we do have a, uh, a right to autonomy, um, then I think there is an, an obligation to say, to, to determine whether unrestricted speech can sometimes violate that right as much as restrictions on speech. So my, I realize I haven't been able to argue for this in any depth at all, but um, my claim is that these defenses of the right to free speech don't actually show us why speech that has certain harmful effects can't justifiably be restricted. And in any case, I think, and this has been pointed out before in the earlier panel, I don't think we should just focus on First Amendment jurisprudence in discussing free speech on campus. As Frederick Lawrence, former president of Brandeis, said in an article linked to the Jefferson Center website, which I recommend people look at, um, to ask whether, quote, a form of expression is protected speech is an essential first question, but not the only question. And he called for vigorous civility. Right? But as Dahlia Lithwick pointed out in the previous panel, this just leads us to ask further questions. What is civility? What does civility require? And how vigorous should it be? sure how much time I should take. Since I really appreciated the comments in the, the first panel and want to reflect on those um, some in, in my last few minutes, I just wanted to say that that I'm I've been sort of in the middle about these debates about trigger warnings and safe spaces, and I really appreciate Dahlia Lithwick saying these are all different issues. Your view about trigger warnings is not the same thing about as your uh, view about safe spaces or about universities funding controversial speakers or about disinviting people after student protests. Um, it's very complicated. These are all different issues, and each issue, I think, needs to be examined in context. I've been speaking out about rape for 26 years, and I actually I wrote a book in which I incorporated first-person narrative about having been raped. And actually, after I published uh, uh, my first article on that, my philosophy department colleague said, well, that, that must have been very therapeutic, but just don't write about this ever again. It's not a properly philosophical topic. Right? And I uh, didn't follow their advice and, and wrote about it anyway, and I'm, I'm glad that I did. But what I'm, I am hesitant, obviously, to even say this, 
But I'm concerned about the reaction, especially on some law school campuses on the part of students who um, are asking to be excused from classes when rape is being discussed um, or are uncomfortable with the fact that rape law is being taught. In a, and of course, I do think it's only uh, decent, it's only good pedagogical practice to give students a head, heads up if something very traumatic is going to be discussed, right? if they're going to be shocked. I was thinking about uh, Kelly Carlin talking about being in this extremely stressful situation and hearing somebody pop a balloon and she thought, my God, the cops have started shooting you know, my father. I do think that having certain really traumatic topics sprung on you in certain contexts can have that kind of effect. So it's only fair to give a certain kind of heads up. But that doesn't mean that these topics shouldn't be discussed. And I had lunch with a professor from Penn Law School a couple of weeks ago who said that when she last taught criminal law, she had seven students who asked to be excused from the section on rape law. And I find this disturbing, especially since you know, for the last several decades, many of us have been lobbying to get these topics taught in courses, in law courses, in philosophy courses. And we've been trying to say, no, this is an academically respectable topic to discuss, and here's how we're going to do it. Right. At the same time, I think it's important to acknowledge that we are talking about topics that are much more disturbing than a lot of things we talked about when I started teaching. Um, or before that. And when we're talking about things like police shootings of black men and women, when we're talking about torture, when we're talking about domestic violence, talking about rape, it's important to acknowledge that these are difficult and challenging subjects, not just intellectually challenging and difficult, but emotionally. So I think that the students who are asking simply you know, for, for a heads up, uh, that, that kind of a content warning are asking for something entirely reasonable and that it's not an indication that they are coddled or that they're snowflakes, but actually that they are grappling with very emotionally uh, challenging issues that we simply didn't tackle before in the classroom. So I'll just stop there, thank you. Thank you. Professor uh, Good afternoon, everyone. I want to um, begin by thanking the um, organizers for having me. Um, when you say yes, sometimes in 2015, you're not sure how you're going to feel in 2016. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I actually teach uh, this on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and I hate to cancel class. Um, with the rising cost of tuition, I always feel guilty when I cancel class. Um, but I only canceled one class, and actually the class that I teach, uh, that I taught earlier today, is actually called um, Black Fire. And it's actually a course on the history of African Americans at the University of Virginia from basically 1964 to the present. 
And today we actually had a very rigorous debate and conversation about the whole issue of living wage. And living wage, of course, is a topic where people have numerous perspectives on that topic. And it's interesting that we talk about free speech and different perspectives because I always like when my students debate and I always like when they argue because uh, it actually makes the, the class go by faster. Um, <laughs> and uh, I think it's also important uh, when we are rigorous. This class that I teach actually, uh, Black Fire, emerged out of really my love affair with my students. I think you come to a place, I came to University of Virginia in 2004 uh, from Notre Dame, straight out of grad school. I'm from Jacksonville, Florida. I uh, went to Temple University on a basketball scholarship. Could have never really imagined uh, teaching here. Didn't know a lot about the University of Virginia besides Ralph Sampson and Don Staley. Um, and something happened three years into, I guess, my tenure. I realized that I had a deep love for my students. And my deep love for my students in some ways transformed into a deep love for the university and a deep love for the history of the university and particularly the history of the university that's responsible for me as an African-American woman being here. And I started investigating the history of African-Americans here post Civil Rights Act of 1964. Of course, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is passed, which bans discrimination on the basis of race, on the basis of gender, national origin, et cetera. Um, in 1969, there may have been 27 African-American undergraduate students here. Um, by 1977, it's 500. By 1987, UVA reaches about 1,000 for the first time. In 1993, there are more than 1,300 African-Americans here. And so I was very much interested in that story. Once again, I love my students deeply, but after reading the 100th paper on Malcolm X and the 200th paper on Martin Luther King, I said, you know, it may be good to sort of incorporate the local history uh, <laughs> into, uh, into my teaching because I think it's always important and I think it's a good idea just in life to always understand the history of the spaces that you inhabit. And so I started collecting, and I started focusing on the history of African-Americans at UVA. And wrote an article on the history of African-American studies at, at UVA in 1970. The African-American studies program was created as a result of actually protests in 1968 and 1969. Uh, 1969, February of 1969, more than um, 1,000 students gathered at the rotunda, and that's them right there. Uh, at the rotunda, um, protesting the university's racist atmosphere, demanding that the university um, embrace a full desegregation plan, demanding that the university admit women, demanding that the university think about application fees, lowering application fees for low-income students, demanding a living wage for workers, and also demanding that the university create an African-American studies program. Now, I just said 1,000 students like 27 undergraduates. So what becomes very clear when we think about that is there's a lot, a lot of white brothers and sisters marching as well. And one of their arguments is that there could be no viable sort of liberal arts education at the University of Virginia without tackling some of these critical issues. And so I started doing this investigation and, and papers turned into film. 
anybody who knows me knows, never ask Claudrina, have you seen? Because it's always, I'm not a film person, but we have one of the most brilliant experimental filmmakers on campus, Kevin Everson, who does film. And so in 2012, we embarked on a film that looked at sort of the interiority of African-American life at UVA. And the name of the film is Sugar-Coated Arsenic. It's played basically all over the world. And one of the interesting things about that film is, I think I was in Rotterdam. And there's a scene in the film where students are engaging in a protest march. And there was someone from Rotterdam who actually debated me and said, that didn't happen at UVA. And I'm like, well, no, it happened. And what was interesting about that is that they had this image about what the University of Virginia it was and what it isn't. And uh, very, very interesting about how they conceptualized what the university was politically. And so we did this in 2002, and we followed it up with a film that looks at, it's called We Demand, and it looks at the anti-war protest on campus. As many of us know, on May the 4th, 1970, there were four co-eds at Kent State University who were murdered, and that murder and that event resulted in an explosion of student protests across uh, the nation. Uh, more than 400 colleges and universities engaged in protests uh, over the war, over the invasion of Cambodia, etc. And the University of Virginia was no exception. I, around 10.30 p.m., about 1,500 students converged on the rotunda to register their discontent with what was going on. And in many ways, if the university administrators thought that this would be just simply an episodic act of resistance, they were in... Um, for a disappointment. Over the next, really over the next 10 days, there were a series of protests at the university. However, the University of Virginia was the only, was a university that the university did not close. Um, classes continued to be held. Um, and over the course of those days, students engaged in conversations about a variety of issues, about the war, about um, the enrollment of African Americans, about the enrollment of uh, women, about Department of Defense, about ROTC. And it was a very um, politically intense and a very rigorous debate. And one of the things that made the University of Virginia interesting is because the president at the time, Edgar Shannon, basically supported the students. And as a result of that support, and, and this gets to the question of, you know, or I would say the comment, free speech is never free. You know, there's always a sort of cost. Um, as a result of that support, I think in many ways it complicated and it, it complicated the relationship between the University of Virginia, uh, the president, and Richmond. And so I guess what I want to talk about today and just sort of um, illuminate is this tradition of political uh, resistance on campus and this tradition of debate. And it's important to understand, I think, that the period that I'm sort of interested in and looking at, those folks who were demanding more African-American students, those folks who were demanding the integration of women, they were very much the minority on this campus. But they were very much committed to an idea, and they were very, very much committed to transforming the university socially, politically, intellectually. But one of the things that I 
appreciate about that particular group, and one of the things that I have to sort of embrace as a student is their willingness to engage in debate with those who do not disagree with them, who do not, excuse me, agree with them. And so when I think about this period from, say, 1964 to 1980, and I gave a lecture in Cabell Hall where I called this generation the greatest generation of UVA students. And I know that's kind of a bold statement, but it was a look who's talking lecture, and I figured I needed to be bold. <laughs> but I truly believe that. I truly believe that those folks who were organizing in 1964 and 1965, what it meant to be a white student who says, you know what, this isn't wrong, what it meant to sit in Cabell Hall in 1963 when Dr. King says segregation is on its deathbed, and what it meant to clap in that audience, took courage. They were not the majority. And I truly believe that the stance that they took on issues of race, on issue of issues of gender um, equity, they helped create the modern UVA as I know it. And that couldn't have happened without free speech. That couldn't have happened without the ability to speak and to critique. My understanding of free speech is very much informed by an anti-lynching activist by the name of Ida B. Wells. Ida B. Wells actually had a newspaper in Memphis called Free Speech. And Ida B. Wells was one of the most um, outspoken critics of lynching. In 1892, she had three of her best friends were murdered. And she wrote a piece condemning their murder, condemning, excuse me, their lynching, but also condemning the ideas that undergirded lynching. It was a $10,000 body um, bounty placed on her. She has to flee Memphis and she never comes back. Free speech, it carries a cost. But I strongly believe, and I don't care what's your political position, I strongly be believe it's critical to a robust democracy. It's critical to our students knowing more. I don't want in my class on living wage for all of the students to agree, because I know they don't. And nothing concerns me more as a teacher when I'm in a class and I know someone has a different perspective and they don't speak out. Because that person who believes that wages are based on the market, I need them to say that because I also need that student in my class who believes otherwise to know that they need to read that work on economics. So part of me and part of my efforts to be an effective teacher is addressing all of these issues and saying the classroom has to be a place of robust intellectual activity. It's all I got. No, really, on some level, I was, I was at the Look Who's Talking and the Virginia Bells were singing or the Southern Bells. And I was sitting up there like about to cry because I love to watch young people just when they're happy. The responsibility of teaching, the vocation of the scholar, the vocation of the black scholar, my understanding it, of it as it relates to someone like Du Bois, this is not a game for me. It's not about me. It's not about my ego. It's about advancing knowledge. And I also know, once again, without free speech, the University of Virginia, as I can experience, is very much shaped by those activists who raise tough questions. 1968, 
protests November 14, 1968. February 1969, protesting. 1970, Vietnam, raising questions about war, raising questions about the relationship of the university to the Department of Defense. That shapes the university as I know it. It's not always a simple conversation. We've talking about free speech. There's also an issue of freedom of association. One of the biggest debates that happened here at the University of Virginia in 1974 to 1976 was the whole Farmington Country Club when they discovered that the president of Farmington, Frank Hereford, along with 144 administrators, belonged to an all-white country club. And I love to have that conversation with my students. Because some students are like, no, this just can't be. Some students say, no, freedom of association. And I was like, okay. Because I'm not sure I would want people analyzing everything I belong to. Right? But we have that debate. And hopefully, my classroom is a space where we can have that debate. And I understand that the people who were willing to engage in conversations about free speech are the reason that I can have that debate. And that's extremely important to me. I talked a little bit about um, Vietnam and, and all of the, you know, the, the protests around Vietnam. And, and as I stated before, for about 10 days, the university was really much, really at the center of protest around Vietnam. And there was a call, actually, Edgar Shannon, and just so you could see a picture of him, and these are just some pictures. That's James Roebuck. And James Roebuck was the first African-American to be the head of student council. He's now a U.S. representative in Philadelphia. And so this film that we did, We Demand, we sort of based it on his, his kind of experiences. You know, he graduated from Virginia Union in 1966, and he comes to the University of Virginia. He applied to the law school, but the university said, you know, we have our quota of one African-American in the law school from out that's not in Virginia. How would you like to go to get a PhD in history? And that's kind of interesting. You know, you apply to law. And he said, sure, because he actually loved Virginia. And so he comes to the University of Virginia, he immerses himself in student life, and he's actually elected as the president of student council. Uh, and so he's the president when like everything breaks out. And that's a picture of Edgar Shannon, who was a U.S. Uh, Navy SEAL. Um, and Edgar Shannon is very much, he's very supportive of the students. And he's supportive of the students in ways that the president of um, Virginia Tech, it was a different sort of relationship. And this is the beginning of UVA sort of getting a relationship, a, a, a reputation of some people like are shot when I say this is a kind of uh, liberal institution. Um, and for some, some of you may say, oh yeah, it's liberal. Actually, when I ask students that in class, it's interesting to think how there are different perspectives. There are some students who think UVA is, is conservative. There are some people who think that it's liberal. And so that, that variety. So Edgar Shannon decides um, on Thursday, so there's the Kent State incident, uh, the Kent State murder is on Monday. By Thursday, on Wednesday, the students offer a list of demands, which once again, it ranges from dealing with the war to African-American presence to women. And then on Thursday, the National Guard comes to the university. It just so happened that when things break out at Kent State, Jerry Rubin and Bill Kustner are here. They have been scheduled to give an address at UVA months ahead. And they, in many ways, incite um, the students. So by Thursday, Friday, there's a lot of conflict. There's conflict in terms of the National Guard. And 
the National Guard actually, and I'm, I'm not sure if I have this picture, but the National Guard actually, and I don't, um, they come on grounds and they come on the lawn and they bring a canine team. And for Edgar Shannon to sort of invade the pristine lawn is just, that's not something you do. They also do things like arrest the pizza delivery guy. Um, and they also invade Rugby Road. And so in some ways, they, they anger a group on campus that most folks consider, you know, pretty not interested in politics. And so there's all of these, uh, you know, there's sort of all of these protests around these issues. And this is, so Edgar Shannon says, we're going to write a letter, and we're going to write a letter to the governor and to the two state senators talking about the war but also talking about the necessity of free speech and political debate. And I just want to, and I'll close this, I just want to read very briefly some of the letters that come back from the Richmond Dispatch. We need real men at the head of our government in these days. And we also need real men at the head of our colleges. I am sorry but I do not think that we have anything close to a real, brave, resolute, noble man at the head of the University of Virginia. Just another Brewster. And part of this letter also includes a request to the state to begin to defund the University of Virginia. Dr. Shannon not only seems to condone the defiance of law and order, but by his vicious attack on his president, and his country has let it be known that the dissidents and protesters are free to do as they please. Virginians who love their country and state are sickened to the point of nausea with the action and behavior of Dr. Shannon. A letter from Charlottesville. We deplore your senseless, and this is to the Richmond Times-Dispatch, we deplore your senseless and unwavering unwarranted, excuse me, criticism of President Shannon. In this time of crisis brought about not only by American involvement in Southeast Asia, but also by the slaying of four students at Kent State University, we believe that Mr. Shannon has consistently acted in the best interests of all concerned. He has shown great courage in the expression of his convictions, and we stand firmly behind our university president. We understand that Governor Holton has mentioned the possibility that the state aid to higher education may be significantly reduced in the near future. We would strongly oppose such a course of action, as it is painfully obvious from the warped perspective of your recent editorial that there is already an overabundance of ignorance in Virginia. Um, now, interestingly enough, um, there is a debate about getting rid of Shannon. And the board actually has this conversation. And if any of you are interested in it, um, I would encourage you to sort of look at the board records. Um, and it's, I still have a lot of work to do in this. This is not something I, I write on the 1920s, but I'm always trying to be kind of a better, a better teacher for my students. So that means being in the archives, sometimes doing something that you, know, you may not publish. Uh, but it's interesting because the board becomes divided over Richmond versus kind of the seven Hampton Roads area. And it's this question, well, this may please our Richmond alum, but this may not please our Hampton Road. You know, this is sort of an interesting debate. But the question of actually continuing um, 
his contract and his presidency is up for debate. And it's up for debate, not just on the basis of what he says. And he basically, he sort of speaks out against the war. Um, but it's up for debate in terms of how they feel as if he's handling the students and dissidents. So uh, I wanted to sort of just talk about, um, to kind of just bring that up, and maybe that's something that we can talk a little bit more about in the Q&A. I want to close um, per perhaps revealing another aspect of myself. I, was, I got here 13 years ago. And so I was younger, a lot younger. And I was asked to be the student advisor, the faculty advisor to, I think, every student group you can name. And so when all of these issues kind of come up, I feel it. Uh, to just give you an example, when Mar the Martise Johnson incident happened on the corner, I didn't sleep for a week. Um, and it was not based on sometimes my position on something, but one of the things I was trying to prevent is the students fighting each other. So I had this thing where the only time they could get together and seem to work together is when I would feed them. So in addition to being uh, sleep deprived, I was also broke. Um, <laughs> but one of the issues that came up was Yik Yak. And Yik Yak is a sort of internet, college-based, application where students can text and you know where they're coming from. So say someone is here and they're like, God, this talk is boring. You know, they can, they can text that and anybody who's a part of Charlottesville um, or this community can see what's being texted. And usually the kind of vile, um, these, look at these black students in the, in the library acting like monkeys. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that it's usually not said it's usually not cavalier daily people don't even do it too much on the comment section but yik yak that's where they do it and that's where the students like live and so one of the things that i struggle with and i don't believe in censoring free speech i just i just don't um i believe in free speech and i believe in in freedom of expression but i have to deal with that and so one of the things i always ask my students is like well why do you get on yik yak um, because you know it's out there, but they get on Yik Yak because that's a part of their everyday experience. But you can't really control if you're in that locality what you, what you consume. All of those messages, if it's from the UVA community, like it's like you get that, it's like a text message and you get everybody's text message. And so one of the things that's kind of interesting for me is you sometimes think you would want free speech because it would actually probably make my job easier because I wouldn't have had to deal with students coming in and crying and dealing with all of these issues. But at the same, in the same, in the same manner, I know that the social media, I know the internet is also a source for many of these students as they begin to organize or if they're doing something or if you're holding a meeting to protest what happened. Um, and so I... You know, but it is something that I think as a, as a faculty advisor, I struggle with. At the end of the day, uh, I think it's important that we embrace free speech. And limiting free speech, and I think censoring spe free speech, is very dangerous to me and very scary because I think it also circumscribes our sort of robust democracy. And I'll stop there, and I look forward to conversations.
I'm going to make just a couple of remarks and I'll keep them brief because I think I have the toughest job of anyone at this entire conference to follow both of you with your wonderful remarks. So we as a society have a lot of conversations about free speech, about hate speech, about civility or the lack thereof. And vigorous debate is very important, of course, and is partly a product of our laws about first, the First Amendment and also a product of cultural norms. But some of this debate takes place in a way that I think is maybe um, vigorous, but not necessarily rigorous, to use a, a distinction that Professor Harold made earlier. Um, and I, I want to try to inject just a little bit of rigor to go along with the vigor, not, to, not in any way to dampen it, but to complement it. Um, and, and to do that, I, I want to make a couple distinctions um, to identify two different axes along which people can be talking when they're talking about issues of, of free speech and free speech on college campuses. And I don't expect that the, the uh, mistakes or confusions that I'm about to, to point out are ones made by you all as lawyers and as future lawyers, but maybe as lawyers and future lawyers you can use them to bring some clarity to some of the, the debates that we have going on around us. So one of these distinctions is the distinction between the descriptive and the normative, the distinction between what is, in this case, what the law is on freedom of speech, and the normative, what we think the law or what a particular person thinks the law ought to be. The second is the distinction between whether we're talking about rules that we think should govern society generally or whether we're talking about rules that relate to the university in particular, that are university-specific rules. So I think it's important to be clear about what type of claim is being made and also um, to, to avoid assuming anything about shared knowledge regarding whatever the type, whatever quadrant we're in, and um, not necessarily to assume shared premises with regard to whatever quadrant we're in. So let me, let me try to do this quickly to orient um, conversations that we might have here uh, today and tomorrow. So descriptively speaking, when we're talking about what the law is, we could be talking about what the law is with regard to all of us out there as citizens of the country, as speakers, you know, not leaving aside universities, what are the baseline laws that govern us in society? And we have a tendency, uh, even on this level, I think, to, to run over these or, or kind of blur them in conversation. So you hear a lot of debate um, out there, say when someone gets fired for saying something inflammatory on a radio station or a television station, what have you, a lot of invocations of First Amendment rights. When you all as good lawyers would say, if this is a private employer we're talking about, the First Amendment doesn't have anything to do with it. The First Amendment constrains state actors, ESPN can fire whoever, a radio station can fire whoever for whatever they're saying. This is a mistake that you hear get made very often. On the flip side, you often hear people say, well that's hate speech, as though that's an argument that, well, of course it can be regulated, um, without seeming to recognize that with, when we are within the bounds of state action, when we are talking about state actors, there's really no such category as regulatable hate speech. We have much narrower pockets than that. Speech can be punished if it's incitement, if it's threat, a, a threat, a true, what's called a true threat, if it's fighting words, which each of these has its own specific definition. It has to meet specific legal criteria. If it's libel, again, specific legal criteria that have to be met. And it's, it's possible to encounter people, even people who work on this, say in, a, in university administration or elsewhere, who seem not to be aware of the fact that hate speech is not 
in and of itself illegal speech under our system. So that descriptive baseline of the rules that govern all of us out there in the world is an important one that I think often gets lost in our discussions. And then you could also have the further descriptive conversation about what does the law look like on college campuses. There too, the distinction between the private and the public is very important. When we're talking about private universities, they are not state actors, they're not constrained by the First Amendment. They have a lot more leeway than state actors do to enact speech codes, to have other types of regulation on campus. Now granted, there may be academic norms, university-specific norms, that, that constrain them in that regard, but the First Amendment does not constrain them. Meanwhile, a state university, like the University of Virginia, is a state actor, has to, uh, is constrained by the First Amendment, has to take that into account. And then to further complicate the descriptive picture, both public and private universities uh, are governed by the Civil Rights Act. They're governed by Title VI and Title IX of the Civil Rights Act that um, provides that uh, discrimination is prohibited, discrimination on the basis of race, national origin, gender, in federally funded programs. Well, basically any university you're talking about receives federal funds and therefore fall, falls under Title VI and Title IX. They're also, for civil rights purposes, um, employment, places of employment for Title VII. So when we're talking about employees, um, those employees are covered by Title VII. So it's really difficult to get all those details on the table, and it's very hard to find someone who knows the First Amendment law at the same time as they know Title VI, Title VII, Title IX. And it's hard to find someone who knows the relevant case law that balances First Amendment issues and values on the one hand and, say, Title VI or Title IX on the other. We have some of those people here. Um, Eugene Volokh is standing up there as one. Um, but even among First Amendment scholars, it's difficult to find, and certainly among university administrators, for whom something like Title VI is much more salient than the First Amendment might be, it's hard to find someone who has all the perspective. Now, if we move to the normative side of things, we can note that here, too, people have, have different, dis have different um, disagreements and agreements. And it's important to sort out, I think, when we're out having these discussions, are we making a descriptive point, this is what the law is, or a normative point? So someone says, he shouldn't have been fired for saying that. Does that mean it was illegal to fire him for saying that, or it should be illegal to fire him for saying that? It's often not very clear. So if we're talking purely about the normative perspective, we don't care what the law is in this country, but we want to say this is how the law should be, I think it's important to recognize that people have different perspectives on this, both in terms of the all-purpose rules that should govern and the university-specific rules. So for a lot of people who want to argue for more regulation of speech on college campuses, I'm always curious about do they mean that should be the rule that governs all of us as citizens, that hate speech should be a category of unprotected speech? Or do they mean the university is special in some way and we have to have special speech regulation that pertains only to the university? It's important to ask that question because those are two very different types of arguments to be making. And you could make an argument that we should have more regulation of hate speech as a normative matter across the board in our society. A lot of the, the European Union does a lot more of it. Basically, all Western democracies do more of that type of regulation than we do. So you could have a normative conversation about that. You could also have normative conversations about the university and what the university is supposed to look like. And people, I think, come at this from two different directions. Some people say, of all places, the university is the one that should be 
um, the most preserving of free speech. A university is a place of free inquiry, free debate. That's what a university's for. That's what it does. But you could also have people who say, regardless of what we do with hate speech out there in the world, when you have students who are paying to be part of a community, and they've recently, you know, they're fair, we're usually talking about young people here, they're just starting out, they have equal standing in that community with other people, and they have a right to expect that their basic right to be there, their basic status as an individual deserving of equal dignity and, ex and respect will not be undermined by the very institution that they've gone to to get an education. So that, that, those are two different views that put special duties on universities, either special duty to recognize freedom of speech or special duty to regulate it. And I want to, the last point I'll make is all of that, all of our conversation about universities are taking place against the backdrop where I think we should recognize universities are some of the most uh, speech regulating places you could possibly hope to see. Now, there's certainly a place for free inquiry. There's no doubt about it. But at the same time, we often gloss over all the ways in which universities regulate speech. Universities require certain, um, certain qualifications just to get into the university in the first place. To speak at the university, that is to have, have a role at the table as a professor, requires certain qualifications. If, you're, if your work is wrong by the um, norms of your discipline, be that the scientific method when we're talking about the hard sciences or something else, you could be fired for that. People are constantly judging your speech at a university and people are constantly regulating people on the basis of speech in various ways. Also at a university, we prize this type of environment where people speak and listen and that requires certain rules of, of order, of organization. Certain people are allowed to speak at certain times and so forth and so on. And we do that for pedagogical reasons. And I think a lot of the clashes in, in the 60s and 70s brought to, brought to the forefront the fact that um, a certain, uh, certain um, types of pedagogical values like that require speech regulation in certain contexts. And protests that disrupt that, a lot of university administrators thought, disrupt the pedagogical mission. At the same time, you have students, I think, who might feel that increasingly their speech is being slotted away into free speech zones, and they're not given the full range of campus to, to express themselves. And maybe it's not an accident that those same students are, when their speech is being regulated, they're asking for more regulation on their behalf inside the classroom and elsewhere. So if we're going to get into these special questions about the university, we're going to have to have a big debate about what a university is and all of the various things that it does and how we can possibly balance them. Um, but that's enough from me. I'm going to invite questions from you. Someone who hasn't asked a question yet. Yes. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Harold, I enjoyed your presentation. I've enjoyed all of your presentations. I just wanted to uh, thank you for recognizing the role of uh, President Shannon. Uh, President Shannon, for those who, uh, most everybody may be too young to have known him and his wife, Eleanor, was a decorated war hero during uh, Naval War Hero. Uh, he was one of the world's leading Tennyson scholars and he and his wife, Eleanor, they were just wonderful people, and there are many stories about uh, the things he did. And one of the stories was when uh, William Kunstler, and, uh, and I had the privilege of being here during that time, 
And when William Kunstler and Jerry Rubin um, were here speaking at University Hall, uh, a large crowd left University Hall to walk up to the uh, president's mansion. And, and the story is, and I, I, it may be apocryphal, I'm not sure, but the, one of the lights was out on the porch. And it, uh, he asked Eleanor, well, where is the uh, uh, ladder? Uh, because I want to make sure that the students feel welcome. And uh, a lot of the students went there with fire in their heart, uh, but Edgar G Shannon was so accommodating, he truly, sincerely wanted to listen to him, that they had a good discussion, they agreed to meet, and they went about uh, protesting, and, and, but not doing any damage to the home or... Uh, creating any harm uh, to the president's family. But anyway, I thought your presentation, all of them are excellent. Thank you. It's been a, it's been a pleasure to get to know him. And just so, not know him, I mean, he said, but uh, someone walked around with a video, with a tape recorder. There are like about 200 hours of tape on, on that, that whole week. And so that was something that I found in an effort to find uh, film footage which I did find full film footage of surveillance. Um, but, you know, uh, we've been trying to digitize all of that and get that to the people. And also having our students go and do oral histories of all different kinds of people so they can draw their conclusions, but so that they can be in control of knowledge production themselves. Anecdote from that. Uh, when the protests were going, basically the general faculty said that you allowed the students to leave and they would get a pass grade. Uh, I think all of the schools did that, maybe except for one or two of the professional schools. The law school, uh, the students mandated or demanded that they would go on, uh, continue. And I remember uh, the, the sort of the craziness of uh, the students being in class and then after class, going outside in the courtyard of Clark Hall, where the university used to be, and marching with signs protesting. After you know, their next class was up, they'd give it to somebody else and then go back into class because it was very important to get as high a grade as you could because your career depended on it. <laughs> Um, Professor Bryson, I work in free speech. I work in public policy on the free speech side. Um, and I've had a similar question to you that, uh, um, that I've been trying to figure out is, why does free speech matter? Why is it so sacred? Why do we hold it to such a high level? I've been trying to answer that question to help guide the rest of my work. And I was wondering, could you share some light on some of the books, articles you've read to help you answer that question? Uh, well, I should probably email you those. I, uh, someone you have teaching here, Fred I'll Schauer. give you my business card. <laughs> oh, okay. I think, um, well, I, I've recently read some wonderful articles by Leslie Kendrick. I recommend her work. And Fred Schauer, who's a professor at the law school here, is, uh, I think, the most, well, I can't say that with the people who are in this room, one of the most philosophically sophisticated free speech theorists, right, among others who are, are going to be uh, speaking tomorrow. Um, but I, I just wanted to, since you're struggling with this, I, I wanted to say that um, I actually don't think there's any principled 
way to draw a line between speech and conduct. I mean, we do things with our words. Speech is expressive conduct. I don't think the Supreme Court has succeeded in giving us a way of making a sharp distinction. Uh, I think we have to act as if there were a sharp distinction because we've got the First Amendment. Right? But I actually am a skeptic about there being a philosophically defensible free speech principle. And apart from that, I think it's just important to think about the harm that's caused by what one might call verbal assaults, right? Or sexual harassment or racial harassment, creating a hostile environment. Or that if you look at the harms, some of the harms that are speech caused, they're not necessarily different in kind and quality from the harms of physical assaults. And I actually think there is underlying our court's First Amendment jurisprudence a kind of fundamental mind-body dualism that, as a philosopher, I don't think is justified. Well, we will return tomorrow at 9 a.m. I hope to see you all there. And with me, please thank our wonderful two panelists.